Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. Hi, I'm Rachel Colleen and welcome to this episode of LawPod. On the 25th of May, the Republic of Ireland will vote in a referendum on whether or not to repeal the Eighth Amendment of the Irish Constitution. The Eighth Amendment amended the Constitution by inserting a subsection which recognises the equal right to life of the mother and the unborn and has implications on the reproductive health rights of women living in the Republic of Ireland. This episode explores some of the issues around this referendum and reflects on the law surrounding access to abortion both north and south of the border. We're joined first by Daniel Roberts, a PhD candidate from Ulster University and a member of Alliance for Choice in the Together for Yes campaign. Danielle joins us to explain the laws around abortion in Northern Ireland and the Republic. We're then joined by Dr Paula Devine from Queen's University, who discusses her role as the coordinator of the annual Northern Ireland Life and Time Survey and explores the changes in public attitudes towards abortion within Northern Ireland. And then finally, we're joined by Emer O'Donoghue and Honora Hardy, two students who are involved in the Project Choice campaign in the Queen's Student Union. We hope you enjoy this informed take on reproductive rights on the island of Ireland. So Danielle, thanks for joining us today. Could we begin, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about yourself. My name's Danielle Roberts. I'm currently uh, finishing up a PhD, although I'm reluctant to say finishing up, but it is going to get done, um, on uh, barriers to women's political participation, focusing on Protestant unionist loyalist women. So it's Northern Ireland gender and politics. Um, I've taken a, a broad view of politics, um, so I'm, I'm including the women's movement and some liberation campaigns in that, as well as electoral, electoral politics. Um, and outside of uh, sort of the the day job, I am um, an organiser with Belfast Feminist Network and Reclaim the Night, and um, I'm also active in Alliance for Choice. Could you tell us a bit more about Alliance for Choice? Alliance for Choice has been going for about 20 years. I've been involved for a wee bit over five. Um, they campaign for the decriminalisation of abortion um, and also are a sister organisation of the Abortion Rights Campaign in the South. And we were a member of the Coalition to Repeal the Eighth as well. So now that has merged with, um, those two organisations have merged with the Women's Council of Ireland to form Together for Yes. So we're part of Together for Yes too. So we campaign across the border um, for abortion law reform, as well as campaign for decriminalisation here and across the UK and in solidarity with um, groups in Poland and, and far beyond because it is a global struggle. If we talk maybe a bit about the law here and then we could talk a bit about the referendum down south. You mentioned um, campaigning for decriminalisation. Like what, what would that mean for for the law here? So at the minute, um, abortion is very restricted in Northern Ireland. Um, our law is from 1861, so it's from before women could vote. Um, so we have uh, abortions only available in cases where there's a serious long-term or permanent risk to the life or health of the pregnant person. And um, in practice, that interpretation has been restricted over the years with guidelines. So only 13 legal abortions were carried out in the last reporting period in Northern Ireland. So um, it's anything that happens outside of those um, criteria is illegal and is punishable with up to life in prison. Uh, that's for the person who has the abortion 
and anyone who helps them, whether that's a, a friend, family member or a medical practitioner. So in the past two years, we've seen four people brought before the courts because of this. One woman was given a suspended sentence, um, two people were given cautions, and one woman is currently waiting on a judicial review uh, as to whether she's going to be prosecuted or not. Um, she got pills, abortion pills, online. There's two reputable web- websites to get them from, um, Women on Web and Women Help Women. They are still illegal, but they're safe pills if they're from those sources. Um, so she got pills for her teenage daughter, who was under the age of consent at the time, and uh, they took a decision to prosecute the mother, but not the daughter. So she's taken a judicial review for that. It's a coming up in a month or so's time. It's been delayed because of the Supreme Court decision um, not coming out yet. So it's, um, it is an act of law. It's not some hypothetical thing. People are being prosecuted under it. And we also had um, raids on International Women's Day last year. Um, homes and workplaces were raided looking for abortion pills. And one of the warrants also said it was looking for instruments which would cause an abortion, um, which is quite a... I can't even think of an adjective to use, but it's the idea that people, somebody was operating basically a backstreet abortion clinic in their artist's workshop is, is just ludicrous. Um, so there are... There are active, there's an active implementation of the law. Um, we are waiting on a Supreme Court ruling, which is due hopefully in the next few weeks, um, but it feels like it's been the next few weeks for the past few months. So we are waiting on that, which will rule whether our law is incompatible with human rights um, in, in limited cases. Um, and then just recently, a funding scheme was introduced for people from Northern Ireland who have an NHS number who travelled to England previously you had to pay for your treatment now treatment is funded but travel you still have to pay for your travel unless you can get a means tested bursary so um, there's been some developments and recently we've had the Belfast City Council has voted to say they support decriminalisation obviously Stormont isn't sitting at the minute so um, it's, it's good to see some some political will for decriminalisation um, so there's some developments but we're still a f- long way off actually actually getting the law reformed yeah and you were mentioning there that women can now travel women and people who can get pregnant can now travel to England and get that treatment for free what's your sense of the kind of numbers of people that are using that method to obtain an abortion so we know around a thousand people a year traveled anyway even when they had to pay and um, that number had been dropping over the past few years because the safe but illegal pills had been increased and um, the people using them so we knew one provider um, alone sent 400 pills in a year so we know that the number of people using the pills is going up so we have the the funding now for people who travel and it's only been in for a few months but I think there was already reported I think a 14% increase in numbers so we're expecting to see the number rise because um, as the, the Belfast court ruled it is a class issue um, with one law for the rich, one law for the poor. So now that cost barrier has been taken away. People are travelling who might not have been able to before. Um, so I do expect the numbers of tra- people travelling to go up because why would you risk life in prison um, just because you can't afford an abortion? Yeah. Um, like now that now that you can get that treatment funded for. Then I suppose then you've still got the issue of people who can't travel yes, for absolutely. a variety of reasons yeah and it is only people with an, an NHS number so it doesn't um, not everybody that lives here will have that 
not everybody can travel and um, people who are in domestic or controlling or domestic um, abuse situations or controlling relationships not going to be able to travel people in precarious employment we've recently had a, a report launched um, in partnership with Ulster University and um, trade unions and Alliance for Choice on abortion as a workplace issue and the, the problems people have with trying to get time off work and because of the stigma around abortion and um, so how how do you take time off work to travel if you're in a zero hours contract? Um, people we know the majority of people who have abortions are already parents, so there's childcare issues to sort out too. Um, for the children they already have, so travel is a stick and plaster. It's been a stick and plaster for decades. Um, but now at least some of the cost burden has been alleviated. Um, so I do expect numbers will will rise, but it still leaves some people behind. Yeah, what do you think are some of the main barriers? Obviously, right now. We don't have a government, but what are the kind of broader barriers to bringing about that decriminalisation in Northern Ireland? I think the main one is the lack of the government, um, but even when the government's there, there's a lack of political will for change. Um, poll after poll, survey after survey, including the Northern Ireland Life and Time survey, which is academically rigorous, has shown that um, the public support for change is there. Um, people, majority of people want limited reform, at least, if not, and the majority of people want decriminalisation. So... We're out of step um, when we look at the politicians and the political party stances on abortion law reform and what um, what the general public want. And then obviously we know there's there's a, at least a thousand women a year travelling because the statistics are all recorded as, as women. Um, we know there's another 400 odd using pills. So women and people who can get pregnant are having abortions in Northern Ireland already. Um, it's, it's just complete nimbyism to the current current situation so I think the fact that Stormont isn't there is a massive barrier because Stormont has the power to change this law we don't need a referendum like they do in the south it's not a constitutional issue it's devolved and um, it's devolved under justice not health because it's primarily a criminal matter not a health matter so um just before Stormont went down the um report which has now been released um there was a report recommending limited reform for cases of fatal fatal anomaly. So um, if Stormont was there, potentially that could be enacted now. But Stormont isn't the only way. Westminster have, have the power to change the law and they have always had the power because while abortion has devolved, human rights aren't. And this is a human rights issue. So Westminster um, could step in and change the law, which it looks like they might be doing with um, with equal marriage. So, And then we've also got the, the court ruling coming, which might um, nudge it further along. Um, what, what would the implications of a uh, Supreme Court ruling that the law does breach human rights be? Um, so that could could force some change for, for limited cases. So it's only for pregnancy as a result of um, rape or incest or uh, pregnancy where there's a fatal, fatal anomaly. So it, it is limited reform. So it will help some people, but um, not the majority of, of people who are seeking an abortion. Why do you think the government in Westminster is willing to use their power to bring about marital change and not reproductive rights change? I suppose it's not the government yet. It's an MP. Mm -hmm. So um, it's not common. It's not government-led for equal marriage. But um, successive governments have used our bodies as bargaining chips. Um, deals have been done over abortion rights. The recent um, funding came in as a a coup by Stella Creasy um, suggesting an amendment to the Queen's speech which the government accepted in advance of the speech being debated because 
obviously with the DEP deal, they didn't want to to lose their votes um, if that was added in to the what was to be voted on. Um, it also saved the DEP from getting up in Westminster and saying the stuff they say in Stormont. So, um, yeah, it saved them maybe, the, the Conservatives, the embarrassment of, of that being exposed. But um, we had that um, amendment coming in. So that wasn't led by the government. But it's not it's not just the Conservative government that's been blocking this. The Labour government um, did a deal with the DEP um, in 2009 for, for 42 day detention. Um, they took abortion rights off the table. Um, and when the 67 Act was being discussed, there was just this idea where we couldn't possibly bring it to Northern Ireland because it would annoy all the sides. So, um, yeah, it's there's been a real lack of... Um, of effort from Westminster, from successive governments. Um, the Labour Party, like Diane Abbott and Emily Thornberry, had the bill. They had it ready to go and then it was they were thrown under the bus for the for the sake of internment. Um so it's not just a, a present problem but it's an ongoing one. Um and then the situation down south then, you know, up here we we don't need a referendum, we just need some political will as you're explaining. What what is different about the situation in the Republic of Ireland? So in the Republic it's a constitutional reform that's needed. So um in 1983, they had a referendum to put in a, an amendment to the constitution which gives equal right to life to the um, fetus and the mother, because um, I think it does actually say mother, as Bob and Aiden fetus is probably an unborn child. Um, so there's an equal right to life in the constitution, and the only way that can be changed is through a referendum, because that's that's their constitutional reform procedure. So it needs to be removed from the constitution to allow the erectus to legislate. Um, so the campaign at the minute is around the referendum on the 25th of May, which is going to um, ask the general public if they want to keep or remove the Eighth Amendment. What are the implications of the Eighth Amendment for reproductive health in general in the South? So the Eighth Amendment affects every pregnancy in Ireland. It overrides the principle of consent. So if somebody is pregnant, they can't consent to or refuse consent for treatment. So um, there's a, a Facebook page, uh, Women of the Eighth in Her Shoes, which has plenty of accounts of people's experience um, and AIMS Ireland as well, um, AIMS. It has a lot of accounts too. So we've, there's, there's stories of people's cancer treatment being denied because they were pregnant. Um, Savita obviously was, was refused a... Uh, uh, and a termination even though she was already miscarrying and then contracted septicemia but it affects every pregnancy um, the midwives for choice um, I was listening to them at an event and they were talking about having a client who the guards she hadn't she didn't want to have a c-section but the guards came to the house and escorted her to the hospital um, to have a c-section there's there's court proceedings and Wendy Lyons from Lawyers for Choice has shared a lot of this um, and it's really it is really um, harrowing stuff about people asking for permission to use restraints on pregnant women um, to perform cesarean sections and but even in in the less extreme situations people just having their consent completely overridden and not because it's an emergency but because um, it's you just don't have a say. 
And what about people who are trying to obtain an abortion then? What kind of barriers do they face in the South? Is it similar to here or more restrictive? Or? Um, it's similar. They have had recent um, legislation. Um, so abortion should be available if, you're, if your life is at risk. Um, and that includes by by suicide. However, the the actual workings of that law don't don't seem to have changed practice all that much. So um, theoretically, if your life is in immediate risk, you should be able to have an abortion. But that's not necessarily always put in practice, and it's very vague language. So it comes down to doctors to decide what is this sort of immediate risk. So. They're risking up to 14 years in prison if they perform an abortion that falls outside the law. So there are people who are um, being sort of brought to the brought to the edge and, and pulled back when an earlier intervention could could have helped them. So do you find, again, a lot of people are then travelling in order to obtain a, a legal abortion? Yeah, so around 10 people a day um, are travelling to England from from the Republic for abortion care and um, they don't have the funding so it's um it's completely out of their own pocket uh, the abortion support network is an organization a charity that um, helps people with information and, and funding who do need to travel for abortion care but people are are traveling to England they're traveling further afield as well there because with air travel now like it's it might be just as cheap to go to the Netherlands and also people are using pills um, there's a, an organisation, Need Abortion Ireland, which gives advice to people on, on using pills. It is, it's legal, it's illegal. It's um, up to 14 years in prison down south, whereas it's, it's up to life here. But increasing numbers of people are using these safe but illegal pills from Women on Web and Women Help Women. So people are still having abortions. It's not stopping them having abortions. What we are seeing at the minute is um, Liverpool Women's Hospital, um, which would provide... Um, abortions for people who have been diagnosed with a fatal fetal anomaly so that's where the the fetus won't survive um, to term or will or the baby will die shortly after birth so um, mostly these are wanted pregnancies um, it's a it's for for a lot of people it's a very distressing circumstance um, to be in and they are they have to travel to to England and it's normally Liverpool Women's Hospital to go to because it's not a it's not a medical abortion, it's a surgical one. And Liverpool Women's Hospital have announced that they, they're they really under pressure and they might have to stop really? taking people. So where are those women going to go? It's and termination for medical reasons are a group that campaigns for terminations for medical reasons. It's it's in the, the title. And um, I would encourage people to have a read at their, at their stories and see just exactly what disgraceful... Um, circumstances people are being put into um, they're not being shown any compassion at all and the compassion that has been shown from from people in England and previously from people in Belfast before the guidelines were made stricter people were able to travel to Belfast again Jerry Edwards their story um, for TFMR they did travel to Belfast in the early 2000s but now they wouldn't even be able to get the care here and people living here can't get the care here either so there's just really horrendous accounts of um, people being put through traumatic experiences um, when they should be getting care and compassion at home. Yeah. And you, you mentioned that Alliance for Choice are part of this Together for Yes campaign trying to advocate for repeal the 8th. Why do you think it's so important for 
uh, pro-choice organisations in the north to support this referendum? Well, Alliance for Choice has always operated on a, a an all-Ireland basis and um, so is the abortion rights campaign, really. Um, we're sister organisations. There's been a lot of of cross-border support going both ways. Um, we go down to Dublin to march, they come up to Belfast. And when it comes to information sharing and um, sort of building each other's capacity, we do that too. There's, like, it's not all just, just activism. There's there's a lot of arts activities that happen. So there's been shared exhibitions and um, there is a real solidarity across the border, but it doesn't stop within these shores it goes to like we're part of abortion rights uk as well and there are international relationships as well so um yeah together for yes is we've been involved in two of the the main organizations in in together for yes so i was on the steering group for the coalition to repeal the eighth as well um so we've been involved in, in shaping this discussion in adding whatever we can um to the the sort of planning and then at this stage we are physically getting in cars and on buses and going and knocking doors and canvassing for a yes vote. And what's your reception when you've been canvassing? Yeah it's been um, mostly positive I don't want to sound like a politician and be like oh great response on the doors but um, in general it has but I haven't had any bad experience I've had some no's I've had some people saying they don't want to talk to us Um, but the first house I went to the person that answered the door um, I'd never canvassed before, um, so I wasn't exactly sure how it was going to go. And she said, um, which one is yes? I sort of did the, the opening patter and she said, which one is yes? Is that the one for change? And so I said, yes, yes, is the one for change. And she said, it, it's a yes. And her, the other person that lived in the house stuck his head out the living room, living room door and said, it's two yeses here. So, and that really sums it up. Yes is for change. Um, if you want any change at all, even if it's just for limited cases, it has to be a yes to remove the Eighth Amendment. Thank you, Danielle, for coming and talking to us. Okay, no problem. We're joined now by Dr Paula Devine from Queen's University, who is here to discuss her role as the coordinator of the annual Northern Ireland Life and Times survey and to explore the public attitudes towards abortion within Northern Ireland. Uh, Paula, could you tell us a little bit about the Northern Ireland Life and Times survey? Well... The Life and Time survey is, as you say, an annual survey. Uh, we've been running it since 1998, um, asking people across Northern Ireland about their views, about the key social policy issues that are affecting their lives. Um, Life and Time is built upon previous surveys that have taken place in Northern Ireland. So we had the Northern Ireland Social Attitude Survey from 1989 to 1996. Um, the funding for that ended, but in 1998, obviously with the setting up of the Assembly and the um, the hopes for a new legislation here, the hopes um, and the potential for a lobbying culture, um, we set up the, or a team of um, researchers within Queen's and Ulster University set up the Life and Times to be very much focused on um, Northern Ireland issues. Um, um, it's an annual survey, it's a cross-sectional survey, which means that it's not the same group of people each year, but it is a random sample of t- about 1,200 people right across Northern Ireland aged 18 or over living in their own homes. So it is representative of the population. So every year we run about four key topics um, that reflect the uh, social, political and policy debates that are going on in Northern Ireland. And how do you conduct the survey? Uh, well, the fieldwork is um, contracted to a fieldwork agency. We have uh, we select a random sample of 
households across Northern Ireland. We randomly select one person aged 18 or over within those households. Um, the field uh, work agency interviewers go out to that address. Obviously, they'll have sent out a letter beforehand explaining the survey and why and how these results are important and how they're used. Um, and um, then the interview takes place in the in the response on home. It's a face to face survey mostly, but there is a self completion element for some questions that perhaps are sensitive and that our respondents may feel happier um, completing on a self completion questionnaire. Are also uh, methodologically for questions that have been asked in that way in other surveys. So we have to repeat the same methodology. And why do you think it's important to do these kind of surveys? Well, we feel that it's important that the public has a voice. I mean, obviously, we sometimes have an assembly that are making decisions on our behalf. Obviously, um, these are elected representatives and sometimes, but not always, they reflect the views of the people who are voting for them. Um, I think it's also important that we get the results out there so people can ex explore and understand what the public feel. Because obviously when, when they go to vote, they're not voting on every policy or every issue that is coming up in the Assembly or Westminster or the European government or wherever these decisions or local government where decisions are made. So it is important that we understand um, how people feel about the issues and why they feel about um, the attitudes that they have. So they get asked questions not just about how do you feel about this but also like why? Yeah, why do you we're, feel we're about trying that? to explore okay. that. And also um, when, when we vote on things, perhaps if we have a referendum, it's one question, but most issues are a lot more complex than that. It's trying to disentangle the different attitudes, which are often sometimes very conflicting and very complex. Yeah. And obviously, uh, you know, you're here today because we're talking about abortion in the upcoming mm -hmm. referendum. And am I right in saying it was in 2016 that you last did a survey that tackled, tackled this subject of abortion? It was indeed. Um, now, we have included one or two questions on abortion at previous times in the Life and Time survey and also in the Social Attitude survey before that running from 89 to 96. They tended to be one or two very blunt questions um, and they also were included in a block of questions that were maybe looking at religious observance or morality. So they were very much framed within that context. So obviously that leads the respondent to think in a particular way and they were being asked for a particular purpose which was perhaps to look at conservatism or liberal attitudes or religious attitudes or spirituality or whatever. Um, in 2016, um, obviously, um, this abortion is an issue that has been um, raised a lot within the public um, policy arena in Northern Ireland. There's obviously a lot of confusion. There's a lot of um, lack of clarity in terms of legislation and other um, policies as well. Um, so we ran a module of questions. So we had about 40 questions just focusing on attitudes and knowledge um, of abortion legislation in Northern Ireland. So which was really looking at understanding of um, people's um, knowledge of legislation and where they th think it should go in the future, looking at their views on whether um, abortion should be available or allowed in particular circumstances and also looking at their views on criminalisation. Now this was part of a bigger project that my colleagues in Ulster University, Anne-Marie Gray and Gretty Horgan 
um, have got funding from the ESRC under a transformative research project that's looking at wider issues in lo- um, on abortion, especially in relation to the taking of abortion pills here in Northern Ireland and also in Scotland. So it's, it's within a bigger context of that. Mm-hmm. But it was fantastic to have that opportunity to look at um, more than just one or two very blunt questions. And there was about, did you say 12,000 responses? 1,200. 1,200, yes. We wish we could have 12,000, but no, (laughs) 1,200 adults um, aged 18 or over. Okay, brilliant. And what were some of the results that came out of that survey then? Um, I suppose the top line results are that respondents felt that their um, abortion should be allowed in particular circumstances. Um, They seemed to be very much against criminalisation But also there were some conflicting results as well, as we would expect, because it's not an issue that um, people will have very um, complex and nuanced attitudes. And that's really what we picked up. But um, I I think people enjoyed having the opportunity to really think about the issues and also to have it um, to to give their voice. And it is important that we have are making those um, results available so that um, policymakers, health regulators, legal teams can look at it and see, well, actually, this is what public thinks, what they do with that information, we, d- we don't know. Sure, sure. And to like talk about the results a little more then, uh, you said that one of the things was in what circumstances should someone be able to obtain an abortion? Mm-hmm. What kind of responses came out about that? Well, there was, um, the majority of people felt that abortion should be allow- allowed if there is a serious or fatal fetal abnormality. Also in circumstances of rape, or incest, um, there was a majority felt that abortion should be allowed in those circumstances. There was less support, perhaps, for um, where the woman is pregnant but doesn't want to have more children. Um, so, as I say, there, people's um, attitudes towards when abortion should be allowed did depend on the circumstances. Yeah. And what was there any support for a kind of more general women should choose? Um, yeah, we did ask a question and there was a, there was um, support for the idea that um, women should be allowed to make that decision and it was the woman's right to, uh, to choose what happens to her body. Yeah, yeah. And then you said as well you were talking about uh, criminalisation or asking mm-hmm. about criminalisation. What were some of the views that came out around that then? Um, again, we were asking questions about um, the taking of abortion pills and and what circumstance, circumstances if um, should a woman be uh, criminalised if they take the pills in particular circumstances. And again, it was, it was fairly similar that um, uh, people felt no... Women should not be uh, criminalised, um, taking pills for abnormalities, rape and incest. Um, so there was strong support for that. Mm-hmm. And then you find that support kind of tailors off as you move more towards... Exactly, okay. yeah. Yeah, yeah. For, for, for different circumstances, similar to, to the other questions mm-hmm. as well. Okay. Uh, and then in terms of, were you asking about people who perhaps travel to seek abortions elsewhere? Um, we asked a couple of questions and there was a feeling that actually we shouldn't be exporting the problem. Um, there was also a feeling that um, in Northern Ireland, perhaps abortion should be something that's to do with medical regulation rather than with criminal law. So there, I, I think the, those two questions were really delving and gave it a reflection that people think actually we, we need to deal with the, the problem here. 
when I say problem, I mean the issue here, um, that it's not something that a problem to be exported elsewhere. That it, um, Obviously, the situation has changed a bit since we asked some of those questions too, because obviously in 2016, 2017, there were some changes in terms of women accessing, uh, from Northern Ireland accessing abortions in Britain. Mm-hmm. So some of the questions. Um, so even it, it just shows whenever you're undertaking surveys that sometimes policy doesn't change and sometimes it can just as you're um, as uh, asking the question. <laughs> so so right. that, that's perhaps one of the challenges as well. And I know you said that you hadn't really done a survey like this before mm-hmm. and abortion had come up, but in different kinds of contexts. So maybe you don't feel that you can really answer this. But did you feel that those results suggested a change in attitudes towards abortion within Northern Ireland? Um, I think it does. I mean, obviously, the questions that were asked in previous years were not exactly like this but looking at the results from those since 1989 there does appear to be a change in attitude however it is hard to say that um, explicitly just because they were quite different questions but um, I think for an issue like abortion or to be honest most social policy issues it's not down to one or two questions we really need to try and tease out um, different uh, nuanced views among among the population out there. And will you revisit this topic in future years, do you think? We would like to. Um, the Life and Time survey um, doesn't receive core funding. It's an independent survey. So we try to obtain the funding for each module each year uh, from different sources. So obviously, if we were able to obtain the funding, we would love to, because I think this is something that um, is important to the lives of living in Northern Ireland. Um, and it is something that um, yeah we would like to um, revisit in a number of years as we try to do with um, most of the questions and modules and topics that we include in the survey because we feel that time series is very important so it is vital that we look at how and if attitudes change over time. Okay thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So uh, we're joined now by two members of the Student Union's Project Choice. So hello and welcome to LawPod. Uh, could we start by just each of you telling us a little bit about yourselves? Uh, yeah, I'm Hanora. So I'm um, the Republic of Ireland Ambassador for Project Choice at Queen's. I'm Imro Donoghue and I'm the Arts, Humanities and Social Science Ambassador and a third year Law and Politics student. What, what do you study? History and English third year. Great. And how, why did you decide to become involved in Project Choice? Um, it was something that was always like really kind of like really important to me. Um, like growing up, um, I was actually brought up like really Catholic, but then it's kind of like a break away from the Catholic Church, like kind of like all with the repeal in the South and everything. And like I was actually, whenever I saw it advertised, I was really excited, like because I saw it online. And I just thought, like, it is such a good thing to get involved with. It's such a good thing to put your time into. And, I like, I really wanted to make a change, like, come, like with the vote coming up and everything. So I put my name down for it. Yeah, it definitely came at a good time um, with the referendum coming up. Um, and I thought we needed to show a lot of solidarity in the North. You know, even though it wasn't going to directly affect us, we still need to be campaigning. Um, and I hadn't been involved in any activism beforehand, you know, apart from going to rallies and that. So it was an opportunity to kind of meet other activists and see what they were doing and learn from them as well. 
what does Project Choice do? What what does it campaign for? Uh, well, we're finally at a stage where the Student Union has a pro-choice stance after years of being neutral. This year, the uh, when we were electing officers, it was a given that they would be pro-choice, but that means nothing unless we have a campaign strategy to back that up. Well, the main goal for us is to inform, educate and kind of mobilise students and because it is a student's issue and it should be treated as such and you know not a criminal offence. I think it's been a very inclusive campaign um, it's one of the things we're proud of uh, that you know we're we're speaking for trans students, we're speaking for non-binary, international students and disabled students who you know the the law disproportionately affects um, and who are easily forgotten. Um, so we've been focusing on that, you know, because they, they are disproportionately affected by the by having a crisis pregnancy in Queens and it can be a very alienating experience if the information isn't there. Um, so we've been working on um, creating an information booklet and having information stalls um, and kind of making the union the first place you go if you have an issue surrounding reproductive rights and that. Um, and we've had a campaign week after Easter. Um, we had workshops and um, and we've had a round table and even an International Women's Day demonstration. And the, is the focus of Project Choice on the law in Northern Ireland or does it also have a, a cross-border dimension to it? It has um, a cross-border dimension, so it's um, obviously for, like, abortion is a criminal offence in the north and the south. It's 14 years in the south, and then it's, I think it's life here. Mm -hmm. And, like, I think that was very important. That was important for me, anyway, because I'm from the south. But it's also, like, to have the two, like, the cross-border kind of working together, I think is really, like, it's really empowering, and it really does show people that, like, some people in Northern Ireland think, oh, what does repeal matter, kind of, because it's not going to affect us. We're different different countries, essentially. But it really does. It really does affect, like, both sides of the border, and I think that was a really, like, a, a key aim, sort of, in Project Choice. And does it have an advocacy dimension in that way, or is your goal more to, you know, inform people about what the law is and what their options are? I like think both. Yeah. Mm. We have to cater to all students mm. because it's such a diverse campus, you know. Um, I think we just have to... We've been focusing ourselves on the repeal campaign because that's happening now um, and that will impact us, you know, whether, it, whether it's passed or not. Um, but we'll still be campaigning after <laughs> the referendum. And why do you think the law needs to change down south? I think it is like necessary that it changed because that there's just the eighth is such it's such a bad law like it's like even if you are like say pro life or anti choice like it's just there's so many gray areas in it and it is really dangerous like um it it really like abortion was illegal before um before the Eighth Amendment came in because everyone, and then the Eighth Amendment became, came in because in 1973 it was Roe versus Wade and they were just kind of like, all oh, right, well, if that happens here. And, and what was Roe versus Wade? It was a Supreme Court case. Yeah. 
that legalized abortion. Mm -hmm. um, and so witnessing that happening in the US influenced policy in the Republic. Yeah, okay. so they felt the need to put it in our constitution, which I think is ridiculous anyway. And then like there's just like in 1983 you had like Sheila Hodgers and you've just like Savita and it's just it really does and those are individuals that have passed away yeah so um Sheila she was refused her cancer treatment um and she yeah she passed away and like even my auntie had um a tumor but every time she went for chemotherapy she had to take a pregnancy test because she wouldn't have been allowed it if she was pregnant, because they're equal in law. So it's just, yeah, they need to go. <laughs> and how, how does it feel for you as someone that uh, grew up in that environment now watching this campaign unfold towards repeal? I, like, it's just so, it's so, like, emotional for me, I think. Like, it's a long time coming, and it's, like, even um, whenever we were... Um, whenever we were, like, making posters for the International Women's Day, this, like, woman, an, an older lady came in and she said it's so good to, like, see us still still campaigning for this. And whenever I went down to Dublin to the abortion rights campaign her headquarters and we heard from speakers who were campaigning in um, 1983 and, like, they were talking about how they just... They were, like, voluntarily... Vol vol voluntarily? Uh, wanting to get arrested because they were like campaigning for this and all and it was just it's so good to see how far we've come because they've obviously waited what like 30 30 years so i suppose good. we see the mirror of that when we saw uh people signing the letter in the north you mm. know declaring that they had taken abortion pills this like challenge to the law's legitimacy over their bodies. Mm -hmm. uh, so, Ima, one of the things that was interesting that you mentioned earlier was that this is the first year that the student union has had this kind of project choice focus and this pro-choice stance. Why, why do you think that is? Why do you think that change has occurred? I think we have a lot more momentum now with the referendum coming up. And again, we, you know, we have to show solidarity with that. But um, the mood has definitely changed in the university. Um, everyone that was elected to the, um, as officers in the union, that they're all pro-choice now. We have to be the representation that, that is elected and we have to um, motivate students to actively campaign. So do you think the fact that they, these student uh, union representatives were elected shows that the student body more generally is moving towards that kind of pro-choice stance. I'd say so. Yeah. I, like I think, it like, as Emer was saying, it was just a given that all the, the off like the sab officers, would be pro-choice this year. So I think I think that does reflect the kind of like student mood. It's I know there is a pro-life society in Queens, but I feel like. Um, I feel like a lot of the student body would be kind of like your body, your choice. Like, even if they didn't, like, they aren't necessarily pro-choice themselves. Oh, well, yeah. Like, for abortion. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. So you can morally <laughs> feel that like you personally would not choose an abortion. But yeah, and, nice. but then it's just, mm -hmm. you know, your body, your rights. Yeah. And do you have anything uh, planned for the future in terms of project choice? Uh, I think we're, we're kind of, like, teasing out um, what we've done 
right and wrong this year, you know, it's it's only the first year of it. So, um, yeah, this is kind of like, I suppose, the first year that with the referendum. Like now, after this, we can focus on the North and mobilise students even more so and focus on advertising better and um, how we can kind of address anti-choicers when they come in and how to manage that. And was that something you experienced? Definitely. Um, I think they, they're always more confident than us. I, yeah. Um, Why do you think that is? I suppose they just have a clearer message um, mm. because it's, it's, not, it's an extremist view. Um, and we're we're more balanced. <laughs> we are the middle ground, and I think that's that's something we're we're trying to get across. And um, we're not going to dictate um, what's right or wrong for everyone. Um, abortion should be an option. Adoption should be an option, and having a baby should be an option if that's what you want. Um, but it's harder to to summarize that argument and be confident when you're saying it. A lot of the time they, like, anti-choicers would come in and um, just be like, well, when do you think that the cut-off point should be for an abortion? And that's a hard question to answer because you don't want to speak for everyone because everyone does have different views on that. So it's really hard whenever you're saying, oh, well, I don't want to speak for everyone, and they're just kind of like, oh, well then. And they feel like that you haven't answered. Like, whenever we were... Um, like whenever I was out in the stall, uh, a boy came up to me and he was in third year English and he just like straight up said, why do you think it's okay to kill children? And that's really hard to kind of come back from, well, because they just kind of, it's really like out there and you you don't really expect it. So I feel like they're kind of like ready to come in and ask these things and you're just kind of taken aback a little bit and it's more complicated than they would think. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe one of the things to explore is, is how to develop the tools for that kind of mm. conversation uh, and how to make people feel confident in engaging that way. Yeah. But certainly it's an extremely emotive issue and I'm sure there's a lot of very, very strong feelings around campus. And as a student union, as you've said, you're trying to reflect that reality and I can see that that must be really challenging. But it sounds like you're doing something really positive and uh, thank you for coming in and talking to us about it. Thanks, Thanks for having us. You've been listening to LawPod, an informed take on current events brought to you by the law students and staff at Queen's University Belfast. This episode was produced by Richard Somerville and Rachel Colleen. Our theme music is by Colonel Chocolate and the Justice Triangle and LawPod is funded by Queen's Law School and the Queen's Annual Fund. Thank you to Daniel Roberts, Paula Define, Imo Donoghue and Nora Hardy for joining us on this episode. You can follow us on social media. We're on Twitter at QUB LawPod. You can also visit our website at www.lawpod.org. Please have a look in the show notes for more information about the topics covered today. You can find us on iTunes and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Rachel Killeen and this was LawPod.